Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beit Midrash. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip. Every translation is an interpretation. In his lecture, Wanting God Near Us, Psalm 139, Rabbi Shai Held leans into the ambiguity of the text. While suggesting multiple readings of the original Hebrew, Rabbi Held considers how ambiguous language in Psalm 139 allows the psalmist to include potentially provocative ideas. Let's listen in. This psalm is incredibly interesting to me because I'm trying to think exactly how I most effectively want to say this, but what's interesting about it literarily and what's interesting about it spiritually directly overlap. What I mean by that is, this strikes me, as I'll show you, as a psalm that revels in its own ambiguity. And that ambiguity, I think, is a way of expressing tremendous ambivalence about God. Literary ambiguity serves to express spiritual ambivalence. I think there's just something incredibly interesting about that. And it's of a piece with many psalms that I've taught over the years which always surprise people in the sense of what is actually expressed in the book of Tehillim. If your only knowledge of Tehillim is Sukkot de Zimra, for example, you can learn a lot of extraordinarily beautiful things. I'm going to give a class tomorrow in which we're going to look at Psalm 48, which I think we'll see new things in. But the Psalms of Lament, for example, and this one, which is genre-defying in every way, um, we're going to take a close look at. I want to um, maybe kind of lead us into reading this verse by verse by by sharing just a couple of things. One is how highly personal and individualistic this language is. This does not seem to be a psalm about the Jewish people's experience of God. This is about my individual experience of God. And the problem that appears to be expressed at the beginning of the psalm, at least, is that God's kind of constantly searching eye makes the psalmist feel somehow rendered smaller rather than larger by the fact of God watching him all the time. He feels almost as if he's stalked. And then if I'm right about this, and along the way, I'll try to show where my own reading of this is also, I think, limited, or there are people who disagree with it, there's a sense in which his perspective shifts And what first seemed like stalking comes to be embraced. There's arguably a certain kind of healing that takes place over the course of this psalm. One really interesting Catholic Bible scholar, Richard Clifford, who's a kind of very well-respected scholar of Semitics, he has like a very interesting take on this, which I'm pretty sympathetic to, I have to say, the more times I work on this psalm, which is that the first half of the psalm The problem is that God seems entirely outside him and is hemming him in. And then what happens is he starts recalling that from the time he was in the womb, God was right there with him and gently formed him almost like a piece of craft, like of artisanship. And somehow the intimacy that that reflects shifts his perspective from seeing God as stalker to seeing God as companion. And that sort of heals his experience. I mean, we'll see as we go whether you, whether we all find that persuasive or not. But I think it's one way of thinking about what may unfold as we go. I, I also, I, I just feel 
in the interest of intellectual honesty, to say that there are modern scholars who see this as totally unambivalent, as, you know, a wonderful poem about being close to God all the time. I'll say, and it's interesting that people's responses seem to support at least this, that strikes me as a really flat reading of what's going on here, as I'll show you. Another way of saying this is, you know, God can be the source of saving us, but God at the same time can be experienced as threatening us. A powerful God who knows everything I do is understandably, potentially at least, experienced um, as both of those things. Brandon, to your question, scholar's name is Richard Clifford. The key word, arguably, in this psalm is knowledge, God's knowledge of him, reinforcing the idea that he is fully and entirely known by God. The root yada is used significantly seven times in this parak. That always, I would say always, that usually is something that's worth noticing. Verses 1 and 2, 4, 6, 14, and twice in verse 23. I also think it's worth noticing how there's an awful lot of you and I language in this psalm. It is on some level dialogical, even though to go back to Aura's comment, the dialogue is taking place only in the mouth of one of the characters, right? It's I, you, I, you, I, you. But the I is, of course, the one doing essentially all of the talking. Okay. That's just a little way of, of sort of framing the discussion. Can I have a volunteer to read in Hebrew and tolerate my interrupting? Okay, so the, first the introduction, right, for the leader or the conductor, a psalm of David. I've talked about this many times over the years at RYI, but not everyone has been there before and whatever it's may be familiar or unfamiliar, but Lidavid is a notoriously difficult word if you're a Bible scholar. The sort of traditional Jewish way of hearing this is that it means by David. Scholars often debate whether it might mean by the Davidic king for David in the literary style of David it encapsulates the difficulty of Tanakh that the word David is enormously difficult to render in English. Okay, so but but in any case, that's a sort of fairly standard beginning. It's clustered here in a group of psalms that are David, and then Adonai Chakartani um, Vateda, God, you have, O oh Lord, you have examined me, and you know me. The the suffix of Chakartani is transferred usually to the next word. In other words, it, as if it said Adonai Chakartani. Right? You have investigated me and know me. And here I want to observe something that is, I think, important. And I, I actually think obvious, but important to say. Some writers who talk about this psalm talk about how the beginning is about God's omniscience. And I have to say that while I think that that's not inaccurate, it's misleading or at least inadequate. Because what the psalm is interested in not God's, is not God's all-knowingness. It's God's knowing everything about me. Omniscience is a philosophical term. And I'm not sure a philosophical term here is what we need. We need more of a spiritual relational term. It's not that you know everything. You know me. Adonai hakartani vateda. You know me. Okay? Go ahead. Um, verse 2. Okay, so you know my um, sitting and rising. This is a merism. A merism to remind you from, you know, literature classes when you talk about 
two opposites as a way of including everything between them. Psalm 95, Lechuna Ranana, Asher Biado Mechkire Aretz, Vitoafot Harimlo, right, is a good example of a merism, right? The, the very depths of the earth and the very mountains, the highest of the mountains, nobody would say, oh, that means that the middle is not God's, right? And some of you have heard me teach before about how one of the most interesting, I still don't know if this is right, but one of the most interesting things Bible scholars have recently argued in my mind is that tovara in Breshit does not mean the tree of knowing good and evil, but rather the tree of knowing everything. The tovara means it's a merism. It's if you eat from that tree, you'll know everything there is to possibly know. So you have the merism here, which is familiar also, of course, from the Shema, the obligation to talk about Torah always, right? That idea. Okay. And then I, I want to just also note that the emphatic here is easy to miss. It could have said, Yadata shifti vikumi. Atayadata shifti vikumi means you know, or if you even prefer, it is you who knows everything about me. It is you who knows when I sit and I rise. Okay? And then, Bantalurei merachok, you know my thoughts from afar. And here I would just point out to belabor one of my obsessions in life that this is not just about actions. God is also interested, very interested in the eyes of the psalm, in the psalmist's inner life. You know everything there is to know about me. Your knowledge of me is total. And that's going to be expanded on in the next pasuk, almost like a bludgeon. Um, Brandon, go ahead. Okay, so the first phrase here is hard, and I maybe should have said at the beginning, there are a few psukim in this psalm that are quite opaque, that we'll have to do some work on. But so seems to me, JPS renders, you observe my walking and reclining, as in when I'm, um, when I'm walking, and when I'm lying down. And zerita is a little bit hard. It probably comes from zerita as in winnow, meaning to examine closely and analyze as you do when you winnow something, meaning you have analyzed everything that I do. So what you have in Psukim Bet and Gimel is a pair of merisms, right? Everything about me, everything about me. That is to say, right, there is nothing about me that escapes your knowledge. Now, I, I want to mention here, um, I'm not sure that I find this completely persuasive, but I think it's interesting. Um, one Bible scholar named Carolyn Pressler argues here that this psalm makes the choice to create word pairs where one of them is very positive and one of them is more ambiguous. So for example, in Pasuk Aleph, she sees chakar as possibly negative because you can be nechkar in a law court, being examined in a law court, whereas yada is most often positive. And in Pasuk Gimel, Zerita conjures, um, conjures judgment, as in Psalm 44, whereas Sakan has the positive meaning to use, to be of use, to profit, uh, to be of profit or of service. Then she'll go on and say things like in Pasuk Yud, Nacha is positive, as in shepherding, but achaz can be positive, but can also be a term used for grabbing hold of a prisoner. And her idea there is that this is another way that the text is cueing the careful reader 
to its own ambivalence about what's being spoken about here. You know, it seems like you're taking care of me, but if I slow down and I think about it, I don't know. Maybe you may, you may be a little much for me, God. Yes, you want to keep going? Okay, right. There is no word in my, my, in my, my tongue, but that you, God, know it well. Translators and interpreters going back a long way seem to disagree about whether what he's saying here is that you know everything that I say as soon as I say it, or you know everything that I will say even before I say it. And for readers who are bothered by philosophical questions, so that raises all kinds of questions to them about foreknowledge and determinism and all of that. I'm not sure it means that. I, I mean, my, my gut is that it actually means as soon as I say it, you know it, meaning you're right on top of me all the time. Now comes Pasuke, which those who argue for ambivalence see this Pasuk as key to the whole text. So, Brandon, go ahead. JP, let's do the JPS rendering first. You hedge me before and behind, right? You lay your hand upon me. You hedge me. I'll just say NIV and NRSV, the two most important um, Christian Bible translations in the world today, right? Render this as you hem me in, which begins to feel kind of stocky. One contemporary translator translates this, translates this as you have bound me because he thinks that that captures the ambiguity really well. You can bind things to protect them or you can bind things to restrict them. So you have bound me, he thinks, captures the, captures the, the ambiguity and hence the ambivalence of what he's talking about. And similarly, the root sarar can imply to protect, but also to besiege. Okay, so it's very difficult to know whether the words here are meant to be comforting or oppressive. I think it is significant, though, that in a very short while, in verse 7, his reaction is going to be to try to flee, which suggests that reading this as just a blessing of divine providence is flat, I think. It misunderstands the progression. I'm not suggesting that it's all negative. I'm actually suggesting, as I said at the outset, there's a kind of reveling and ambiguity here that I think may be part of the kind of spiritual point. Francine, as for, um, sorry, you mentioned here Martin Cohen's translation. So that, you could argue that. I mean, Robert Alter reads this similarly, you shaped me. I think it's very unlikely that that's shot. I mean, Cohen's translations are often really interesting, but that feels, and I'll tell you what, what's, what lends credence to that reading is what follows about the shaping of the fetus in the womb. But to read Sartani here as you fashion me, I would say loan your Ellie, honestly. Um, Brandon, want to go ahead? Okay, so that, let's look at JPS translation for a minute. It is beyond my knowledge, right? JPS says it is a mystery. I cannot fathom it. Okay, so that's possible, except here again, let's notice the ambiguity. To be yacholle can mean to prevail over something or defeat it in battle. So 
you can translate this as it is high. I cannot evade or defeat it. Meaning, I wish you would leave me alone, but I can't fight you off. But again, to belabor this point to the point of driving you crazy, the whole point here, I think, is that you can read it that way, but you don't have to. This is, in other words, it's almost like this psalm is a kind of performance art. You know, you listen to it the first time, and you're like, okay, it's a pretty generic psalm about, you know, God's providence. And then you slow down, and you realize that again and again and again, you can hear different things potentially being said. I would even say that the phrase pliadat mimeni, which JPS renders such knowledge is too wonderful for me, Pele can suggest wonderfulness, but it can also suggest being extraordinarily, diff- extraordinarily difficult to understand. On your source sheet, I think I gave you three examples of that. Psalm 131, Job 42, Proverbs 30, where Pele doesn't mean, oh, it's wonderful, which gives this a very positive connotation. It means it's totally mysterious to me. I wonder if there might be some hint of ambivalence here. I don't understand you. Not you're too wonderful. Make about how differently those two sentences sound. Your knowledge is too wondrous for me, or I can't figure you out. Right? Those are two very different ways of responding to someone who takes an interest in our lives. Let's shift now to verse 7. And I think you can say that verse 7 to 12 will again hammer home the point that God's presence is totally inescapable. And so let's see, Brandon, if you if you keep reading now what you see here, okay? Okay, great. So where, where can I run from you? Like you, and then let's see how he develops that. Im, go ahead. Im esak shamayim. Right. If I soar to the heavens, shamata, you are there. And if I atsia, GPS's translation, I think here is not ideal. Atsia here, they say, if I descend to Sha'ol, I would translate atsia as if if I make my bed in Sha'ol, if I bed down in Sha'ol. Matsaim are bed sheets in modern Hebrew. In other words, I can go to the very highest heavens, you'll be there. I can go to the very lowest depths, you'll be there too. By the way, this is a kind of interesting hyperbole because, as you're no doubt familiar from various other biblical texts, the idea is usually that Sheol is the place that God does not look. When you go down to Sheol, you're cut off from God. But here, almost to make the hyperbolic point as hyperbolic as possible, you have this idea of, Look, I could go down into the very depths of the earth where you're not there, and you're there. This is nowhere for me to go. And then verse 9. Okay, so there, again, JPS, right? If I take wing with the dawn to come to rest on the western horizon, if verse 8 gave you a vertical axis, I could go all the way up. Or I could go all the way down, but I'd still, you'd still be there. This now gives you a horizontal axis, right? If I started in the very most east and I ended in the very most west, there you would be. I actually think um, it's, wor- it's worth, I mean, this is a kind of a rather almost mythological image, right? If I soared with the wings of the dawn, right? And then I set with the sun, everywhere I went, you'd still be with me. 
for those who like this kind of thing, the Septuagint seems to read this text here as Esak Nafai Shachar. That is to say, I will ride my wings. The reason that that works nicely, but that also may be a reason to be suspicious of that reading, is that makes the parallelism with the second half of the verse better. Right? Esak Nafaim, I will rise in the east, Eshkenah in the west. By the principle of the more difficult text is probably the correct one, you might be skeptical of the Septuagint emendation. Okay, this is like verse 5, I would suggest kind of amazing. Because when you read it quickly, it seems like what you're getting is, look at the JPS rendering, even there your hand will be guiding me, Tancheni, your right hand will be holding me fast, Tochazeni. However, first of all, think about the context. I'm trying to flee from you, and you're achazing me, right? That can sound rather imprisoning, actually, right? I'm trying to run away. I've tried going, you know, if I tried to go up, I tried to go down, I tried to go east, I tried to go west, you're still holding me. You can almost imagine, you know, a kid who's out of control and the parent holding the kid by the shirt. There's a way in which you have, you know, that kind of image here. As we saw earlier in Carolyn Pressler's comment about this psalm, le'echoz really can mean also to take hold of someone to imprison them. This is another example of what I meant when I said that I think this psalm revels in its own ambiguity. And, you know, some of you have heard me say so many times over the years to the point of I know it can be irritating. However slow you read by nature, you must train yourself to read much slower. I think Tehillim is just an amazing example of that, where here, again, if you read quickly, it's like, okay, here's a beautiful psalm, spiritual sense of God is always with me. And then you read it slower and it's like, well, wait a minute. God is always with me, but how do I feel about that? Can I have a, someone volunteer to take over reading in, in the Hebrew? Va'omar ha'choshech yeshufeni v'layla or ba'adeni. Okay, great. So here's the problem with this verse. I don't know what it means. <laughs> if I say, surely darkness will conceal me, that's a reasonable guess about what Yeshufeni means, but still not certain. Vilayla or Ba'adeni, night will provide me with cover. This is an example of the, my favorite JPS comment, meaning of Heb uncertain. The idea is clear, even if the words are difficult, which is that darkness may conceal people from each other, but they're, it's totally ineffective in concealing them from God. Right. In other words, you know, I can hide in the dark and, you know, yet you're not going to find me if it's pitch black. But God sees perfectly normally in the dark. The same idea, obviously, in Pasuk, you'd bet, which um, you can you, just read it for a minute, Lee, if you don't mind. Right. That one is more clear, right? Darkness will not be too dark for you, and night is light like day. They're all the same. You see me everywhere. And that appears to be, be curious if you sit with this psalm a little bit later, if you share this sense, but that appears to be the end of a unit where 
one could really be forgiven the sense that the psalmist feels stalked by God. Again, it's possible to read it otherwise, right? A, a quick reading would suggest maybe, you know, this is wonderful, you're with me everywhere. But as we've seen, there also seems to be some sense here potentially of a feeling stalked and, and hemmed in. Then we have some kind of shift, which remember, just to remind you where we started, I think a couple of people were not yet on the call then, the Bible scholar Richard Clifford's observation that when he starts talking about God being intimate with him from the time he was in the womb, his mood and his attitude towards God's watching him begins to change. It's almost like, I mean, this may sound like a strange way of putting it, but think about the difference between saying, you watch me all the time and saying, you watch me all the time, right? One is a posture of like, I wish you would leave me alone. And the other is, wow, you must really love me. You must actually really care about me. And I think it's not crazy to say that we move from in this Psalm, the you watch me all the time, damn it, to you watch me all the time. You've been watching me since I was nothing. And that becomes precious to me. I think that that is, I, that, I, I certainly think that that is a plausible reading of the way this Psalm unfolds, but let's see if people are, you know, persuaded by that or not. So, Pasuk Yud Gimel. Ki ata kanita chilyotai tesukeni baveten imi. So, kana here means to create, the earliest meaning of the word in Biblical Hebrew, which I'm going to, those of you who might be on the on my lecture this evening, I'm going to talk about the centrality of that in Shiratayam. It seems like what you're talking about here is, uh, here and in the next few verses, is his kind of wonder at the process of gestation. God saw him even when he was in the womb. And although I, I no longer have it in front of me because I have this, the way I set up the screen now, I think I gave you Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 on your source sheet as well, which is a famous example of that where Jeremiah's experience, that's there, right? Did I not? I did. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the other famous example of being known from the womb. A another way of saying this is, I'm not sure that I totally like how I'm about to say this, but I'll try it out. One of the reasons you know every last thing about me and I'm incapable of escaping you is because you have been involved in my life from the very beginning before I was anything at all. Right. In other words, it's not like you discovered me when I was a four-year-old in nursery school. I was nothing. I was, you know, uh, a, you know, a, a newly formed embryo, and there you were. Interestingly, by the way, I don't have anything to say about this yet, but I, I think it's kind of striking. It's striking how rare in Tanakh is any reference to the idea of God as creator of the individual. In the spirituality of this text, I. I have this, this is not on your source sheet. Cause I only started thinking about this like an hour before the class that there are four cases that I can think of that are clearly about the creation of an individual besides for Adam Arishon in Genesis one and two, that's more complicated, but Psalm 139, the Psukim we're doing here, Jeremiah one five, which we saw Psalm 22 verses 10 and 11 and Psalm 71 six. If you're injured, you can play around with those later. I just think it's interesting how not common, that is. Um, I'm not sure quite what to do with that, but I think it's interesting. Another way of saying this perhaps is that his consciousness shifts now from 
a God who is sort of looming over him in an almost threatening way to a God who is present to him in a nurturing, life-giving way. In other words, the perception of God here matters a great deal. Kiatakanita Chilyotai, JPS goes rather idiomatic and renders Chilyotai as my conscience. Chilyotai, literally my kidneys. Um, you might say with some, you know, translations, my innermost parts. The connotation that JPS goes with, I think, is correct, but it's idiomatic. And I've talked about this a lot in RYI classes over the years, and some of you may, you know, this may be totally old hat for you, so forgive me. But, you know, that is a very clear choice that the JPS, the new JPS translators made, right? They always aim for idiomatic English which means that if what you're interested in is the literariness of the Hebrew, you will often lose it in the JPS rendering because what it's interested in is something that is readable in English. You know, the other pull for J from JPS is Everett Fox's translations of Tanakh, which are barely in English at all by design, right? They're really an attempt to use English words to capture the inner dynamic of a different language. I mean, Robert Alter, I guess you would say, is sympathetic to what Fox is doing, but still trying to speak idiomatic English. And when he's on, it means the translations are quite powerful. And when he's off, he's doing neither exactly. And it's kind of hard to figure out what he's up to. I mean, and it's a fascinating question. I think also as you teach Tanakh, what do you want to hand people? More and more, I've started thinking lately something that I've never actually done is that in a, when I teach a Tanakh class, I should give people four or five translations of the text that we're working on at the same time, just see what happens. Because I think it's, again, JPS is very good for what it does and very problematic if you're interested in the literary artistry of the text. Okay. Pasuk Yudalid. Odcha alki noraot nifleti niflaim asacha v'nafshi yodaat ma'od. Okay. Odcha Here's an example where knowing modern Hebrew can be an obstacle to knowing biblical Hebrew. Lehodot means to praise. I remember once hearing Steve Geller, professor of Bible at JTS and a really interesting literary reader of the Bible, observe that biblical Hebrew has no way of saying thank you. It can really only say thank, uh, praise you. So, Odecha, I will praise you. Alki noraot nifleti. JPS, for I am awesomely, wondrously made. Robert Alter here and some others translate nifleti, since it doesn't have an aleph, as from set aside. That is to say, the shoresh would be pe lamed he, and not pe lamed aleph. Alter writes, for awesomely I am set apart, may very well be. Or, or, or you can also translate nifleti perhaps as I am made distinctive, something like that. And that would make sense here, arguably, Alter argues, because he's talking about how God has known me as an individual since I was in the womb. So it's not just about being wondrously made, it's about being individually made. Here, too, at the risk of sounding like a lunatic, I wonder whether the Nifleti in both senses, Pelamet He and Pelamet Aleph, may both be in play. Part of what's wondrous is the individualness with which you made me, right? You... you we are all, in that sense, uniquely and individually made. Here, in contrast to verse 6, which supports the idea of a mood shift, Pele seems to me here to be more unambiguously positive. 
right? Remember, we saw in Pasuk Vav, and we talked about, well, what does he mean by that? Here, Nifla'im Masecha seems like an, and in the context of Odecha, seems like a clear, right, um, declaration of God's wondrousness. I also want to observe, without going too far in making this point, that it's significant, I think, that no ra'ot elsewhere, and you have a few examples of this in your source sheet, no ra'ot elsewhere refers to God's great and mighty deeds in history. And I think it's interesting that here the idea of God's creation of the individual psalmist is as wondrous in certain ways as God's redeeming the people from slavery, bringing them to Har Sinai, etc. There's something there I think that's quite beautiful and a good discussion starter in many ways for a class either in Tanakh or in some kind of, you know, like biblical texts and their, their spiritual visions of the world, right? This notion that simply the fashioning of an individual is a wondrous act of God um, in history too. I think means something like in my very being, I know it, right? Nafshi in the sense of in my, you know, not reminder that nefesh rarely in Tanakh means soul. It means throat. And then from meaning throat, it comes to mean self. And again, the reason why the word for throat comes to mean self, just imagine someone comes up to you and smacks you in the throat, right? In the ancient world, many people thought the seat of life was right here where I have my hands because it's such a vulnerable place. That might be where life is. Hence the ability to strangle people as Deborah has just pointed out to us. Um, (laughs) But, um, so nafshiyodat I think is a way of saying, I, I, I could be wrong here, not just that I know it cognitively, but I know it in my very self. I know that you have designed me and been part of forming me from the very first instant. I, I, in other words, I suspect here that leidat is a deeply experiential form of knowing rather than cognitive. My being knows it as opposed to my mind knows it or even my heart knows it. Okay, great. So, Pasuk Tet Vav. Lo nichad atzmi mimeka asher useti vaseter lukamti bataktiot aretz. Okay, so, right, my frame was not concealed from you. Okay, frame is, it, I think it's based on taking atzmi as from atzamot bones, my, my skeleton was um, never concealed from you. When I was being shaped in a hidden place, I was woven together in the underworld. And here, in ways that I'm sure there are people here who would have more to say about this than I would, there is some kind of deep archetype here about the womb and the depths of the earth, which I suspect exists in many cultures. Okay? So, in other words, you've known me from the very, very, very beginning. And then, in order to have a little bit of Rachmanus on Lee, I will just say before he reads it, that Pasuk Tetzayin is a meh. I don't know what it means. We don't know what it means. We'll play around with it and see what we come up with. Okay? Go ahead. That part we can translate, right? You saw my unformed limbs probably is right. Although here the word golem, which comes to be important in various moments of Jewish spiritual history, this is a hapex legomenon Tanakh. It exists only here. Um, my unformed, unshaped self, you already saw. And then comes 
this incredibly confusing few sections of the pasuk. Go ahead. Um, so first of all, let's notice that the al sifrachah isn't clear what it refers to, and also the plural yikatevu and kulam has no antecedent, or no clear antecedent at least. You'd have to make one up and insert it, right? In other words, you have no idea what is being written in the sefer here, unless you think it means the days that are mentioned in the next clause. Yamim Yutsaru. That is not how JPS reads Yamim Yutsaru. JPS reads Yamim as sort of Liyamim. In due time, they were formed. Rashi thinks that there is a book that contains a list of all the people who were ever to be born. And God shared that book with Adam, and so we're all written in there. I, I, I don't know. Yamim Yutsaru, JPS, as I said, in due time, they were formed. Alter and some others think it means the days were fashioned, right? That the, the future of my life was already given shape while I was only in the womb. Again, philosophically inclined readers were always bothered by, is that a form of foreknowledge? Is that even what's being interested in here? And then guess what? The, the next part also is very hard. Vilo echad bahem. JPS, again, thinks to the very last one of them. Walter thinks that you should add the word based on nothing, by the way. He's guessing here that it should say, not one of them did lack. But that is, as we say in biblical scholarship, cheating. Meaning it's one thing to have a manuscript or to have a word that you can amend. He's literally just making up a word that he guesses goes there, which is fine. It's better than I can do with this verse, but it doesn't seem to be so plausible. Now, just to give you a, a sense, so reading JPS in the English, right, you had, your eyes saw my unformed limbs. They were all recorded in your book. In due time, they were formed to the very last one of them. Now, just to hear a different rendering of this, the NIV, your eyes saw my unformed body. Okay, that's more or less the same. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. It's totally different. If you want to just go nuts for a minute, the NRSV, your eyes behold my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. That is the same rendering as the NIV in different words. And then alter my unformed shape your eyes did see. And in your book, all was written down. The days were fashioned. Not one of them did lack. I'm not sure what alter has contributed here to be honest. Like, it seems rather rather obscure to me. And I'm, I'm, to be clear, I'm not blaming him, meaning I think he's working with a text that is most likely in some way defective. I mentioned that Carolyn Presley, the person we talked about earlier, the way she interprets this verse, which I think is worth mentioning, even if people are not necessarily persuaded that it's obviously correct, is that earlier, she had the psalmist had the sense that there was no place or time where he could escape God. Now, she thinks, he rejoices that there are no days outside of God's care. God knows every last thing about me, and that's awesome, right? That's a good thing. Is it possible that this is a reference to, like, the Book of the Living? And that um, 
at the moment of my fashioning, you recorded in your book all of the, the all the days of my of my of my creating of my being created. Is that is that a possible reason? All the days of my being created, meaning what? The time it took to create me, or all the days that I will remain alive? No, from the time that you created me, you wrote me in the you took an accounting of me by writing me in the book of the living. Yeah, I think that's kind of what Rashi thinks this means. I haven't seen modern scholars seemingly, well, I guess you could say that NIV and NRSV are saying something similar to that. Not sure. I mean, when they say, in your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them has yet existed, that's not so far from what you're saying, Zach, I think. Or at least it can be read that way. That's exactly what I was saying. Like, it's sort of like... You knew me so well that even as I was being fashioned, you from the very moment you started creating me, you wrote me in the book of the living. Yeah. Okay. So yes, could be, could be. By the way, Neil, your your window right now looks like Moshe has just come down from Har Sinai. The sun. I don't know if anyone can else can see that. It's just kind of amazing. Karan or Panecha. I can vaguely make out that you're there. It's it's amazing. It's amazing. I'm glad that God has finally revealed how unique you really are. Pasuk Yud Zayin and Yud Chet, we're now going to get to this idea again that God's thoughts are unfathomable. Lee, if you don't mind to keep going for a moment. Okay, so first, Mayakru Re'echael, so yakru can mean two things. And here I again wonder if the ambiguity is intended. JPS translates how weighty. I'm sorry, you could also translate as how precious. Yakar can mean either of those things. And if it means precious, it's interesting. Because remember, God's first thought, God's thoughts originally, divine knowledge was seen as the prophet is like pitted powerlessly against God's knowledge. Whereas here, the thoughts are perceived totally differently as precious to him. Pressler describes, she also thinks that the ambiguity between weighty and precious is intended. And her comment is that God's unfathomable mystery is both profound and cherished, right? It's weighty. I don't understand it. It's totally beyond me. And it's yakar, but I'm, I'm delighted at, and um, by it. Again, the mood seems to have shifted from oppression to its opposite. There's nothing oppressive here anymore. It's, it's wondrous and wonderful. I'll just mention also that re'echath, meaning thoughts, forms a kind of inclusio with verse 2. There, God knows his thoughts. Here, in the transformation of the mood, he is awed by God's thoughts. Shai, since you mentioned that, yes. where, where do we get that meaning of thoughts for this, for this word? Um, Reba's question is from a sense of surrender or acceptance. That's such an interesting question. I think that the reason I'm inclined to say acceptance is that he, if there was surrender, by the end of the progression we've seen, he seems kind of delighted. Like, you know, surrender, maybe another way of saying that, and I hope this doesn't get us kind of derailed, is that surrender can have a very negative connotation, but in certain spiritual settings, surrender can have very positive connotation. You know, I'm going to stop fighting it. You know, if there's a possibility that there was surrender at first, it certainly seems that by the end, I would even go beyond acceptance to suggest that maybe we can say there's embrace. 
not sure what you think, what you make of that, but that would be something I'm inclined to say um, about this. Um, Francine's giving us Martin Cohen again. One second. You saw my embryonic state that had all the details of my development written down in your book. All my days were just charted, including every last one. Yeah, I think that's plausible. I think that is plausible. I think that's plausible, except for you have to do some work to make the last phrase mean that. To make the low echad bahem mean that, I totally love, and I even suspect that that may be what's intended, but I don't know how to make the words mean that. And then related to that, Brandon says, do you think NIV and NRSV are essentially reading below echad bahem is below echad bahem? Let me look at translations again for a second. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed me, why none of the days were existed. Brandon, how do you see below echad bahem as giving us before I was formed, uh, before any of them existed? You mean, oh, below echad, I mean, I see what you're trying to say. Right. I, I guess it's possible. I was just struggling with how else yeah. they could get there in general. And the only thing I could think of is if it was below, like in there, not yet being one of them, below a hot man. Like, yeah, but it was just trying to make sense yeah. out of. Yeah. Okay. I hear you. I, it's not, it's not any, I mean, <laughs> this is going to sound like a half baked compliment. It's not any crazier than any other reading. It's possible. Reba. Thank you. I was asking about Rhea oh. as thought. Yeah. I found it. Yeah, what'd you find? It, it's a third uh, root from Resh Ayan Hay. Right. And it gives opinion, thought, disposition. Um, they seem to be relating it to uh, Aramaic, like, which is like will, you know, root. Like Ra'ava, Yehei Ra'ava Kadama, yeah. right? May it be your will, right. So that's, are they saying that it is an Aramaism, which would make it late? Or are they just saying that it's related to Aramaic? I think that they're saying that it may be related. Um, okay. I haven't, I haven't read BDB in a long time. Um, I like the image of you're reading the BDB, like before bed, you take 20 pages of the BB, BDB and read them. It's kind so of an do, awesome image. It makes you seem like even more of a dork than me. I'm thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> One, um, one other, just one other thought. Yes, I don't please. know if this. I don't know if this works in biblical Hebrew or not. But velo um, echad bahem. I mean, since we don't know what it means, I don't know if it helps to say this. But could it possibly be construed as velu? Yeah. So, how early is velu as a? Since I have BDB in my lap, I can... Yes. I mean, I, I will tell you that in all honesty, when I was reading this psalm through for the first time as I was kind of preparing for this class, this is one of those times where you pick a psalm to teach because you know you've always wanted to work on it and you never have, so you have to, you know, have it prepared. When I first read it out loud to myself, I read it as velu echad mehem, which is totally not what it says, but it kind of made it work for me in some way. But I, I don't honestly know... I'm so bad at this, at where, how early that, haven't seen that, by the way. I've looked at a lot of academic commentaries on this psalm and haven't seen any version of that. Dove, I, your question is interesting. Can you read verse 17 as overwhelmed by God's thoughts? I mean, I suppose you could. It doesn't feel, I, I mean, I, you could. It doesn't feel to me like it flows as well with the mood begun by verse 14. Right? Verse 14, when we're now explicitly in the language of Odecha, 
you know, I will praise you to then have the thoughts be weighty as in overwhelming to me feels a little off to me. But if I just read Pasuk Yud Zayin, I for sure could read it your way. You know, one of the things I've been struggling with is trying to sort of figure out how the verses flow and articulate, you know, a mood or a set of moods. Just for a minute, you read, you also read, Lee, while you look up the the, the Lou question, you read verse 18, Esperei mechol yerbun, if I I were to count your thoughts, they would be greater than the sands. Hekitsoti ve'odi imach is really interesting. So the standard rendering of this, Hekitsoti is, I awake and I am with you. JPS and some other translators take this from the word Kate, I come to the end, meaning I st- what they're trying to do there, I think, is you were with me from the womb, and even when it comes to the end of my days, you're still with me, right? For the entirety of my life, for all of my days, etc., the question for the Hekitsoti, I awake, is what does it mean? Awake from what exactly? Right? Alter in what you may be imagining, what you may consider a stretch, writes the following. What the poet may be imagining is that after the long, futile effort of attempting to count God's infinite thoughts, he drifts off in exhaustion, then awakes to discover that God's eternal presence with all those endless divine thoughts is still with him. I mean, there's nothing here about having fallen asleep. He seems wide awake and overwhelmed by, you know, overwhelmed by God's thinking. But sure, I mean, again, as I mentioned, some of these psukim are quite difficult to un- unpack. Um, one thing that might be noticed here is, notice the transformation from, and this partially responds, Dove, to why I'm kind of resistant to your reading, even though I like it locally, is that if you remember in verse 7, he was talking about his urge to flee. And here, I think there's some delight in, you know, whatever Hakitsoti means. Oh, here you are. You're still here. Or interestingly, I'm still with you, which is surprising. You would have expected, by the way, in verse 18, Hakitsoti ve'odcha imi. And you are still with me. But what you get instead is Hakitsoti ve'odi imach. John Goldingay, who's a contemporary evangelical scholar, an interesting reader of Tehillim, he actually suggests that the reversal of this expression is meant to pave the way for what's about to come. He's saying now not, I awake and you are with me, but I awake and I'm still dedicated to you, and that's why I want your enemies to be killed, which we'll talk about again in a minute. Lee, did you find anything good for us? Uh, well, just if, if you want it to be old... Um, we have Luchachmu Yaskiluzot. Yes. Nice. I like it. I also like the way you said it. If I want it to be old. Very nice. Yeah. So, okay. I, I, I want to, you got to give me a little time to think about that reading. Okay. Interesting. I don't know. Let me, let me, let me play around with that. Okay. Okay. Then comes in the 13 minutes that we have this kind of surprising Turn, which again, since a couple people joined along the way, right? I mentioned that some historical critics, you know, Kidarkam, want to imagine that this is a later edition. It's not part of the original poem. In quite a few Christian churches, when this psalm is recited liturgically, the last psukim disappear and are not 
um, liturgically performed. But I think we might want to try to figure out, like, let's assume for a minute that it is part of this text and figure out what it's doing here. No, why, I don't mean, we, why don't we actually read all the way through from 19 to 24, and then we'll discuss them since we're a little short on time. Go ahead. Im tiktol eloha rasha va'anshe damim surumeni. Asher yom rucha limzima nosela shav arecha. Halo misan echa Hashem esna ubit komemecha et kotet. Tachlit sinah sneitim leoivim hayuli. Chakreni el vidalavavi bechaneni vida sar apai. Ure im derech otsev bi unechani bederech olam. Yeah, unechani bederech olam. Yeah, good. Okay. So all of a sudden we have this fantasy or this wish, oh God, if only you would kill the wicked. By the way, at the risk of being a total pedant, the word for God is not Eloha, but Eloa, because a patach under a he at the end is exactly like a patach under a chet at the end. This is something that for some reason most students of biblical Hebrew never learn. I don't know why that is. So all over we say Halel, you know, Eloha Yaakov, it's Eloha Yaakov. My late father, who was in addition to being a philologist, also a bit of a performance artist, is famed for having said to a student who read Milifnei Eloha Yaakov in class, a funny thing happened to me today. I was knocked over by a rucha, which is, in other words, it's just so keep that in mind. And um, Okay, so if God, if only you would kill the wicked. By the way, that got no laughter, but that was a very clever line, if I do say so myself. <laughs> you murderers, you bloodthirsty people, you get away from me. So let's read this first in the most positive, generous light and then wrestle with what's obviously challenging about it. The generous light or the internal logic you could argue of this text is if I'm going to say that I now embrace God watching me, so then I have to be resolutely opposed to wrongdoers. Okay? I, that, in other words, um, right? If I, so in other words, part of what it means to be in a relationship with God is to oppose those who are in kind of obstacles to God's way being you know, flourishing in the world. I'm going to talk about this psalm in my class tomorrow afternoon, but you can look at Psalm 104, the psalm for Rosh Chodesh, Barchi Nafshi, which ends in a similar way. It has this glorious vision of what a kind of an ecologically flourishing universe would look like. And then it ends rather abruptly with Itamu right? Like if only they died. And I think what you're, what you're, what you're experiencing there is this impulse to say, I want what gets in God's way to be out of God's way so that a full flourishing of the divine will is possible. Isn't yeah, that a, yeah. a, a kind of standard trope in, um, in Psalms where at the last or second to last pasuk, there's an invocation of enemies and destruction of enemies. Think of Psalm 23, Psalm 27. I don't have yeah. Yeah. So, so Gila, the only way that I would kind of caveat or complicate a tiny bit the way you put that is it's not only at the end. Yeah, true. I mean, Psalm yeah. 27. In fact, I'll tell you that one of the most on one of the most persistent debates in scholarship on the Psalms is who are the enemies? Right. Yeah. 
I mean, this is an ongoing struggle. And one of the things that's interesting is, is it seems like there is a very conscious choice on the part of Sefer Tehillim never to identify them. Topic for perhaps another day, but, but, but it's very, very interesting. Um, so the, I would say the answer is yes, and it's even more complex. But I think what's still interesting here is how stark the, or jarring even the transition is. Now, to go back to something Brandon said almost an hour and a half ago, um, Walter Harrelson, a contemporary, I think he's still alive, I'm not totally certain about that, Protestant Bible scholar, he basically says, if there's no escape for the man of faith, then why does God allow the wicked to run wild? God, if you're really there all the time and you're watching everything that's happened, then do something. Do your job. That's a very different way of hearing, I'm lined up and wishing for what you wish for. Now, it's worth saying there's some danger in these verses, right? Which is that, first of all, the temptation to conflate the people I don't like with God's enemies. So these, we can try to understand these verses. We can wrestle with them. But I think it's also worth acknowledging the ways that they can be dangerous. I mean, some people might say, if we had more time, maybe if we were in person, we could talk this out a little bit. Some people might say, no, I'm happy to pray for Saddam Hussein to be you know, obliterated by God. I have no problem with that. Some people might say, yeah, but I'm nervous about when you make enemies generic, then you run the risk of opening the door to all kinds of very problematic ways of thinking. Okay. I mean, it is what it is, unfortunately, at 555. Now, Pasuk Chaf is another one of the verses that's very hard. Asher Yom Rucha Zima, I think, can mean one of two things. JPS takes it to mean they invoke you in their evil doing. But another way of hearing it, as some other translations do, is they attack you in their evil doing. Not that they use your name in their malice, but that they speak against you maliciously. You follow? Those are two very different things, right? One is an attack on religious people who use God to bolster their hate or their evil doing. And the other is an attack on people who attack God. Two very different ways of hearing that. I have to say that what, what works for me, what seems persuasive to me about the idea of they invoke your name for intrigue, as opposed to they speak of you maliciously, is the phrase nasa lashav, which seeming or nasu lashav here seems to um, remind us of the Ten Commandments, where it's about using God's name for malicious purposes, not attacking God. One of the things that I'm sorry if this is confusing with so little time left. One of the things that supports the reading of they are attacking you is the word arecha can mean enemies. And I gave you an example of that in the source sheet from um, Shmuel Aleph. Some manuscripts read here, not Arecha, but Adecha. They speak up against you um, very directly. Okay, now, Sukim Chaf Aleph and Chaf Bet, right, is a kind of declaration of, God, I'm entirely on your side. How? By I, I hate your enemies. Now, some modern scholars try to say, well, it's God's enemies and not his own, whom he says he hates. But again, I just would want us to be cautious about noting how tempting and how common it is to imagine that God has all the same enemies we do. Um, this is, you know, a topic in a lot of spiritual writing. And then the last couple of lines are really very interesting. And someone, I, I now forget if it was, if it was Lee 
who somebody mentioned this earlier, forgive me for having forgotten who. So on the one hand, you can read this as, and I think you probably should read it in part as, look, before I didn't like that you checked everything about me and I wanted to escape, or at least part of me wanted to escape. Now I'm inviting you. One way that you might say this is what was once indicative is now a request or an imperative. Would not imperative, but would that you were to search me. That's the shift in mood from accept from from resistance or frustration or ambivalence to a kind of embrace or acceptance. Another reading that I have not seen often, but I've seen a couple of scholars suggest is that verse 23 and 24 can be read as a kind of self-critique of what he's just said. I'm going to read just this line from this one scholar. He says, here the psalmist recognizes that his surrender and commitment to God does not set him apart and give him the right to feel superior to others. That is to determine for God who are God's enemies and who are not. And so he says, you know, come search me. The problem is, with that is, it seems to me like seems to suggest that he's confident he's not a sinner. It doesn't seem to me that he's saying here, check me out and see if you dislike anything. It's check me out and you'll see that I'm loyal. You see what I'm saying? So that seems to me to, we- to weaken that reading. One more ambiguity here that may be interesting is Derech Otsevbi confounds translators. Some assume that Derech Otsev ought to be read as Derech Etsev, which would be idolatry. Atzabehem Kesev Vizahav, right? And something Derech Otsev means as in Otsev, as in Atsuv. You cause me vexation. See if there's any way that I act that is undesirable to you. Now, it's possible to say, well, isn't that a wonderful ambiguity? It is the Etsev that causes God Otsev, right? Idols are what causes God uh, um, frustration, uh, uh, frustration, vexation. Now, and then finally, Unicheni, in verse 10, we suggested that maybe Unicheni is ambiguous about what it means. Here, Necheni seems much more positive, less ambiguous. So, uh, first of all, again, how a slow reading suggests that there's a much richer process here than we might think, and that it's worth thinking about how maybe through the ambiguity in Hebrew, the psalmist is, permits himself to say things that he otherwise wouldn't say directly. And I wonder whether part of this is he could say, well, I, what do you mean? I didn't say anything critical of God. You could read it straight through as a declaration of this amazing stuff. It's what, led, what, what allowed Brandon to say, oh, it seems generic to me. But if you're reading more slowly and more closely, you could say, wow, you're really struggling with this all-present God. Like, it really drives you a little crazy. You know, again, like, I, I think a question that if you sit with this psalm, one has to kind of come to some kind of understanding of is, what is it that enacts the shift in him? And if I'm right that the shift takes place around verse 13, that it seems something like, how do I say this? Let me think. It has to be related at least to the idea that your knowledge of me is intimate rather than just threatening. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg, Jeremy Tabak, and Susan Pilevsky. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. Additional editing by David Chavinsky. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you. <laughs>